As part of our series, Working Through Key Players in the Development of the SMS Industry, we have a great podcast with Paul Rogers, who pioneered the development of the Asian market for Logica Aldiscon. Paul tells us some great stories about the learning and the doing that made the company so su- successful in Asia. He talks about the team effort and the enthusiasm of the people who went to all parts of the continent and also the local people who, across the region, made such a big difference. Some of these stories are funny, some are darker, but all are about building trust with customers across the region. Finally, Paul finishes on a personal story about music and plays out on a great, if little known, piece that means something to him. Check out the great image on the show cards. I think uh, everybody will find something in this podcast that's funny or amusing or even surprising. Cheers. It's a tough competitive business to drive telecom sales. But now there is a new channel that is making all the difference for innovative companies. That's the Digital Sales Channel. At Netzer, we are the leading digital sales channel provider for telecoms companies. Our customers can testify to our ability to listen and implement solutions that work for them. If you are a mobile operator, an MVNO or an eSIM provider, We'd like to understand your business issues and work with you to drive your sales. Contact pat.flynn at netzer.com and we can talk. Okay, welcome to the podcast this week. I'm a very special guest with someone that a, a lot of our listeners will know, Mr. Paul Rogers, based in Asia. Um, and Paul was one of the significant people in Aldiscon, but also has an, a really interesting view that's different than Europe and North America, which we've covered already. So first of all, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Pat. So um let me just say hello to you and uh, to your, your vast audience. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're quite up to uh, Terry Wogan standards yet, but, you know, we're, we're, we're working on it, you know. I'm working on my manners, Paul, you know. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so yeah, that, so for people, just as, for people who may not be aware, well, we've talked about this a number of times in the podcast, but Aldiscon was a seminal company in the Irish tech space, which actually exploded into a giant company and it it was well, myself and Paul were just talking and what was really incredible about it was you know we'll talk a little bit about why was it so successful one of the reasons it was it went global very quickly and Paul was very instrumental and I may undersell him even here in opening up Asia and other markets so yeah Paul how, how did you get involved back in the day what you know were you work were you with someone else before you went to Aldiscon how did all that happen yeah, I worked with a, a company called uh, Mentech. So, um, Mentech. Yes, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I, I know Mentech. Yeah, Chris Fairclaw and those people, Mike Pierce, and yeah, yeah, Mike Pierce uh, lectured me in college, and also oh, okay. um, 
Mentech had uh, Mentor Capital, which invested in open mind networks back in uh, the day. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so, anyway, sorry, I digress, but go ahead. So you worked at Mentech. Oh, so I was with Mentech, and um, I'd done some work with Gilbert in the early days of, of Oluscon, you know, pre-SMS. And mm -hmm. um, then at, you know, at one stage, I, you know, time to move on from Mentech, and uh, Gilbert said, do you want to come work with us? And... Uh, yeah, I said, okay, fine. I said, so I think the original idea was I'd go, and, I was still a working engineer at the time, so I'd, I'd go and work with Joe's team somewhere. And uh, I just had an off-the-cuff question. I said, so, you know, what else are you guys doing? You know, and he listed these, this whole litany of things, and one of them was, uh, we want to open an office in Asia. And I said, can I do that? <laughs> so Gilbert said, <laughs> Gilbert said yeah, okay. <laughs> did, you have any, did you have any idea where you were going to go in Asia? Not a bit of it, but <laughs> I, wherever it was gonna, I was going to go, it was going to be warm. <laughs> so I, I guess, like, obviously, uh, yeah, different times, but Gilbert was a, was a very special character, um, I guess, at the time. So um, I came aboard in January 95, sort of uh, hopped on a plane, uh, met Mehran Miramadi, if you remember Mehran, who was the you know, global commercial director at the time. Yeah, so, and, uh, so, so, so just for people who mightn't be aware, I, I know this sounds like an insider's club, but these people were the people, uh, Mehran uh, Gilbert was founder, co-founder. Mehran may have been founder, but he was, he was a really great sales guy. And these were the core team that started Aldiscon. So, sorry, Paul, go ahead. Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, I, when I came aboard, I mean, um, you know, success is not built, you know, from nothing. I mean, you're standing on the, on the, the shoulders of other people who come before you. So, came to Asia. But we already had, as a company, been really successful in, in, in Europe and the US. We had AT&T as a customer, you know, the likes of Manusman in, in Europe. In Asia, we'd already sort of taken uh, you know, uh, Telstra, you know, Hong Kong CSL. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, all selling is, is typically by reference. So we had fantastic reference kind of a base to, uh, to start from. And... Um, but maybe I'll just talk a little bit about Asia at the time. Yeah, like, yeah. So, so this was when GSM networks were just starting to be built out. Oh, my God, yeah. So, I mean, Asia is it's not like Europe or the U.S. So it's, it's a very fractured place, lots of you know, countries and borders everywhere, different cultures, languages, customs, lots of regulations. It's also in the ring of fire. So there's lots of you know, earthquakes, you've got lots <laughs> of you know, typhoons. Um, it was undergoing a lot of, you know, I guess, political change, so like lots of people marching, marching the street, you know, coups and God knows whatever. So like, for example, you would have had uh, like the earthquake in Kobe, so completely flattened, uh, you know, that, that central Japanese city sort of showed actually the, uh, the vulnerability of cellular to earthquakes and fires. Um, mm -hmm. The sarin gas attack in Tokyo, um, Fukushima had its first spill whilst we had an office in, uh, in Tokyo, so you had to evacuate the office down to, to <laughs> Osaka. The first uh, SARS pandemic, we had the, what, the Hong Kong handover, Macau handover, the, uh, the two coups in the Philippines. So I was there for one, Jeff Head, who you, you, you may know. Yeah, Jeff, good uh, old Jeff. It's a really extraordinary experience. He's at Army lads politely asking you, would you mind moving hotel? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the, so this wasn't uh, stayed all Europe, uh, Paul, as we had told. Not at all. You need a coup in Jakarta, in, in Indonesia, ending Suharto's rule. So thousands of people were killed in Jakarta. Uh, people marching the streets in, in Malaysia for democracy. Then you had the Asian currency crisis of '98. So we actually lost the company. We lost a million dollars from one of our our, our, our customers uh, during that. I thought I was going to lose my job. <laughs> 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 and um, but I guess like you know that kind of showed me 
that you know when Ireland had the 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 the, the uh, uh, I guess like recession you'd call it in two thousand eight if that's yeah, too small yeah. word for what happened. So the same thing more or less happened in in Asia in ninety eight. So you had. Um, people who suddenly had the good life only for a very short period of time. It's suddenly taken away and how societies respond to that. So like in Korea, for example, the Koreans are tremendously proud people. You know, you can see it in the soccer team. They die for the shirt. Yeah. So normal people were just giving up their gold to the government back to currency. It was simply extraordinary. So, so you could see Asia was going to respond and, and rebound from, from the crisis, which it did. And you know, obviously the same thing happened in Ireland. So it's um, mm -hmm. you know, once... So, on. so when, you, when you first got there, you, you, did you go, was it straight to KL or where, where did you go? <laughs> um, I first got, so I went to, to KL and in the, in the old days, actually, the, the whole idea for a lot of Irish companies to come to Asia, but they base themselves out of Sydney. Mm -hmm. And you, pre you pretty soon realize, one, you know, Australia is full of, full of Australians. And two, it's eight hours from anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the distances are incredible. It's a whole okay. hemisphere, isn't it? So essentially, you're, you're wasting three days, you know, going to and from, from Australia with, with meetings and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So we were looking around. And um, I mean, one, I looked at the map of Asia. And it was full of cities. I mean, the level of urbanization out here was extraordinary. So in China, even like something like 300 cities at the time with greater than a million, million population, like the 700 million people in East Asia, like the whole Japan, kind of mm -hmm. you know, Taiwan, Philippines kind of, uh, kind of area. And they were all going to build out mobile networks, you know, and pretty much all at once. <laughs> so you're going like, yeah. oh, what are we going to do here? So um, I think we quickly sorted out, okay, we need three hubs. So a hub in, in KL, which would give us Southeast Asia, hub in Hong Kong, which gives us like you know, Philippines, Indonesia, or Philippines, you know, Taiwan, you know, uh, Southern China and uh, Tokyo. So mm -hmm. we're, we're obviously we we did uh, we did very well, and then we had to to populate it. So so I arrived on my own, and then I think I, I needed some some you know, super smart sales guy who was shall we say very flexible, and <laughs> so hence we brought up Mark Shields. I don't know if you remember him. And then we needed a bunch of young engineers. So I, I noticed I'd be back and forth to Dublin all the time at the office. And uh, two lads, you know, Fran O'Hara and, and Ronan Casey, kept on annoying me. When are we coming out? When are we coming out? <laughs> and I remember, and I love this attitude, by the way. So I remember having a conversation with them. And they're saying, listen, lads, okay, you're going to come out in a, in a month's time. But it's been a big change of plans. So oh, what's, what's, what's the problem? So we're not going to open an office in Sydney. We're going to open an office in KL. Great, great. Can we go there? Can we go there? <laughs> they probably didn't and, know where it was. Paul. Exactly. The fan says, by the way, where is it? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I preempted your joke there, but I, I was thinking, yeah. No, but it, it, was, it was reflective of, shall we say, the enthusiasm. Uh, enthusiasm and attitude at the time. It was like, I mm. think, like Asia was an extraordinary just adventure. Like, here's this amazing market. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, it was phenomenal. I mean, I don't want to go into the still the customer relationships, but say the Japanese venture was hugely successful, wasn't it? I mean, it was yeah. an incredible um, operation. And I mean, the, the, whole, the whole Asian thing, because we did both SMS and prepaid. Mm. So I worked it out years ago that over 80 years, we generated like $750 million in, in revenues, like over a billion dollars in, in today's money, I guess. Oh, like yeah, easy. No, it's, it's amazing. And how, how did you find selling there, Paul? I mean, I, I, you know, it's particularly my sort of most um, culturally different experience of selling in the Middle East. And I've made some, I made some mistakes, I have to say, <laughs> cultural mistakes. But how did you find it going into Asia? Because it's totally not something that we, us in Western Europe, normally get absorbed yeah, that absorbed the culture from, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I, I very early on made um, my first mistake by, uh, so I met the CEO of the company in, in Malaysia, like one of the telco companies, and uh, you know, he was Muslim, but he wasn't, you know, excuse me for being non-PC, he wasn't Middle Eastern Muslim. When they say they don't drink here, they don't. <laughs> so I had a bottle of my finest Middleton, <laughs> which was our best whiskeys at the time. And he was a charming gentleman. He just like took it, oh, this is a beautiful box, you know, thank you so much. <laughs> He still has it, does he? <laughs> he probably does in a museum somewhere. Yeah? Mm-hmm. But I think that um, you know, being Irish, that one, we're very good at, you know, we can be very good at listening to somebody. So listening to what the customer is trying to do. So I found that like in a sales role, so you've got two roles. One is helping the customer buy because they've got their own pressures, they've got their own processes and all that kind of stuff that they need to satisfy internally. And then helping us sell. I mean, obviously, like we had obviously lots of problems. You got lots of resource issues. You know, there's only so much money, you know, uh, legal issues, contracts, the amount of time I spent with Rosemary White, just like, please, Rosemary, like, you know, <laughs> there won't be a typhoon next year, I can promise you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so just building on networks. So I think Jay Murray and co had helped in the early days of, of AlbusCon, had helped through the cable network relationships to get to you know, at least get access into 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 the csl mm-hmm. so you're just trying to you're you're meeting people you're meeting people particularly in the telco vendor community and um you know just delivering on your word delivering on your promises and mm-hmm. then they'll trust you and then they'll expand the relationships and of course like once we got into a relationship with an operator you know <laughs> it was done it was our relationship then. <laughs> it was yeah it's very hard to to remove an incumbent and an operator once you build trust and you deliver Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There was actually um, the I wanted to ask you there, or maybe you're pointing out anyway. Is like the basics of business are what made the company successful was you know trust delivery. It was all technology, yeah, and no, that was complicated yeah. stuff. But, but, but it really was about trust and delivery, wasn't it? I think you're absolutely right. So it doesn't actually matter about the technology. The technology is only it's a means to an end. You and some technologies are actually you know, like solutions looking for a problem. So I think one, we were in an extraordinary position whereby the industry had got it wrong on SNS. So the big vendors had kind of pulled their programs. And uh, so some of them just didn't have SMCs. And then you had this network, extraordinary network rollout um, scenario whereby they needed it. And you know, we were first in the door <laughs> and we were really hungry. So like in, in Taiwan, for example, there were eight lights. So at this time you had... It's not like now. So you have new networks coming out. So you'd have uh, Taiwan as an example. You've got eight networks there. Um, so we would find out, okay, who are all the people bidding for those licenses? Who are the network vendors looking for to support those license bids and all of that? Mm-hmm. And then I think we put in something like 200 new proposals. <laughs> just like uh, uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. And like nobody else was, was, was doing that. So even even before the license was granted, you were knocking on the door. I mean, that sends a big message to them that you are hungry. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the comments that was coming back regularly from Taiwanese people was like, is there nobody else in this game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also, also, Paul, you know, this, it's, I, I don't know, I keep say, saying this, uh, but the whole concept of sending a short message to somebody, apparently globally, is some itch that, that can't be scratched because it's like you, the wife says to the husband, don't forget the bread in Dublin, uh, Jakarta, um, Hong Kong. You know, it's the same thing all over the world where you, you don't really want to 
big long conversation. It's like, could you do that for me, please? Or Absolutely. don't forget this. And I think in, in Asia, um, you know, messaging was really taken up in volume much more before uh, US and Europe. And part of that was obviously the business community got, you know, just got into it really fast. Um, young people just in droves just ad adopted the, the, the technology. Yeah, so like we had, uh, so long before Europe, so we would have to be hand-holding the systems at holiday times, like, <laughs> like <laughs> please don't crash or whatever else. And then, uh, I mean, I think I, I, we, we talked in, in our, our discussions earlier about like the impact that messaging can have on, on society. So mm -hmm. um, obviously it was kind of very liberating for a lot of people in Asia. In Japan, it was most significant, I think, in terms of how it impacted how people communicated. Because in Japan, you got, like, it's a very formal language. So mm -hmm. I'm particularly in the office, it's very much about, you know, I want to ask you the time. It's like, please excuse me, I want to ask you the time. What is the time? You Thank you for telling me the time and blah, blah, blah. You know? Whereas mm -hmm. in Japan, we only had like 70 plus characters because of the, the technology we had. And suddenly it's like, what time is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an interesting one. No, I, I, I lived in Japan for a while, so yeah, I understand the formality. Some of the other Asian cultures are, are much less formal. Um, I mean, I'm the Hong Kong Chinese. You go out with them and, you know, next thing you're in a bar and they're talking about their wife. You know, I mean, sort of like really relaxed. And yeah, um, yeah. I, I, what, what was your experience with the different cultures and what did you like or not like? But I think, um, like, just you know, when you're you're talking to the the, the, the Hong Kong customers, um, I mean, that was something that we all started. You know, so you know, we brought not just technology to the the thing, but we brought our personalities and like you. Would, so I was really careful in trying to match people to different accounts, and because uh, you know, different personalities can can rub off and 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 whatever. But I, I think that that was part of. Um, what people liked about us, like they liked to deal with us because they knew that one, all customer relationships can go through bad times um, and it can be our fault, it can be your fault. And, um, but I think that as a company, we distinguished ourselves by, that was never an issue, mm -hmm. that we always stepped up and uh, people became friends. I mean, you know, obviously I'm not going to your, to your wedding maybe, but you know, I could learn to trust you. And I think that we created, and that, that, that all came from Gilbert as well, by the way. So this was a, a company-wide ethos I think we had as a, as a culture that customers were more than just simply customers. We recognize them as being human beings. They've all got their own pressures and uh, you know, they have their own customers. So we would do um, what we could to, to help them. Yeah, we, yeah. just, we weren't just there for the quick buck of the next deal. We were there for the long term. Yeah, no, it was, I, that, I noticed that culture when I, when I was in Aldiscan. Actually, I remember one time, and I, I knew, because I'd worked in Japan, I was expecting this. I, I was a product manager, and there was some problem with, I won't say what the customer was, but there was some problem with some project product. I was asked to go to Japan to basically, as we say here in Dublin, take a bollocking, right? So anyway, I, went, uh, I flew out there, you know, went into the meeting, and the customer shouted at me in Japanese for 10 minutes. And then we, and I nodded. And the, the interpreter was just saying to me, the customer is very angry now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, really? And at the end, we all stood up, shook hands, and that was it. And the, the problem was solved. You know what I mean? I was, I was brought in, I had nothing to do with this product. I was brought in to be, you know, I was part of the, the you know, it was, an it was a message that was being sent, and this is the, how they sent it. And that was... That was fine, you know. I'll tell you a story about Larry Quinn. I'm sure you wouldn't mind me telling you this. So um, just before I arrived, um, uh, Larry... So, so, so um, Larry was, for people who are listening, Larry was one of the, the founders, and I think he was CEO for a while, right? Uh, sorry, sorry for cutting across the Paul. Go ahead. 
So Larry was CEO and he just, he literally, he just come on as CEO. <laughs> like he, he wasn't in the, in the company a wet day and he had to go to um, uh, Belset, New Zealand um, because uh, there's a lot of problems that I can't and uh, things weren't going well. And, you know, you know, so Larry said, right, I'll go down and visit them. Right? So, you know, New Zealand in those days, like, like what, six days to get there or whatever it was, some crazy <laughs> So he gets off the plane, so he goes into, he's just had a shower, so he goes into the meeting and he's on his own. And uh, so he thinks he's going there just to have a chat, figure out what's going on, how can we improve things and blah, blah, blah. And sitting across the table from him is the CEO, the CFO and the lawyers, right? And, and they say, thanks for coming, Larry. So we're, we're here to discuss, you know, exiting the contract. <laughs> Larry is like, oh, what am I going to do? And they're starting to get into their role about like, you know, penalties and goodness, whatever, right? And Larry says, listen, look, oh, just hang on, hang on. Um, directly to the CEO, listen, could you and I just, like, you know, I've just flown like you know, 40 hours and blah, 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 just off the plane. Like, could you and I just have a quick conversation before we, we, we conduct this meeting? And uh, you know, the CEO, fair enough, says, you know what? Fair enough, Larry. Uh, understand, uh, let's come into my office next door. This podcast is sponsored by Netzer, the leader in digital sales channels for telecoms. Thank you for listening to our amazing innovators tell their stories. So they go into the office and your man turns around to Larry and says, so what's the, you know, what do you want to tell me? You know? And Larry looks up and says, I have no idea. <laughs> 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 I've just got off an airplane and face like you know, lawyers and like contract breaches and blah, blah, blah. And uh, your man just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and they wound back the relationship from there, you know. So uh, I think, um, uh, again, it was just part of the culture. I mean, I've been through many situations like that myself. Because you got a you know, really difficult, tough, tough customer. Or, you know, sometimes we've screwed up. Sometimes they've screwed up. Just go to the top and just get it sorted. You know? And we yeah. just seem to have a way of being able to do that. Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely uh, really interesting. Uh, that's what I say is like the... The, for some reason, the company attracted really uh, young talent, which I'm going to include myself and that company, attracted really young talent, and they saw an opportunity to grow internationally and, and deliver. And that was probably the key to success. I mean, I've talked to um, Bill Dudley, was in Infomatch in the States, and Steve Manzanon from CMG, and um, both, uh, both of those guys sort of had the same experiences. There, it was a time and a place, and people saw the opportunity and went for it. Absolutely. So you, you talked about your your experience in Japan. You know the, the first SMS that was sent in Japan? No. Are you going for a pint? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. That was in well, Telepath, yeah? Yeah, like uh, uh, just, just just crazy times. But yeah. um, Are you going for a sake? Yeah, I, yeah, but for me, it was amazing that, that like the Japanese had their own uh, non-GSM uh, standard called PDC. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I'm so I came into Japan through um, uh, a company called like an organization called Jetro. So when I was working in Ireland with with Mentech, I'd, I'd established a relationship with, with those guys because we we're working with Enterprise Ireland for some projects into 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 Tokyo. So when I got to notice this uh, older gentleman from Jetro in Ireland, and uh, so we go into Japan. Uh, I I'm, I come back after first set of meetings and uh, go back to Dublin and um, Louis Cargan, if you remember Louis. I know so, Louis well, yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely. So you know, having an engineering background, I made sure I understood who are the good engineers in the company and who could be trusted and like, did they really know what they were at whatever else? And Louis is just one of these rock solid characters. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember having a chat with him. So he says, um, yeah, you know what? We can do this. So it's completely, you know, out of the, out of the blue. So sort of, uh, 
it had never been considered. So at least within GSM, you know, messaging had been considered as part of the standard within PDC, it just wasn't there. So we were layering this extraordinary sort of uh, facility uh, directly into the PDC network. And um, so, so yeah. what do you you put this all over the standards? What did PDC use? Uh, sorry, it is a bit technical. PDC used um, a similar SS7 signaling system, didn't you? Well, I mean, everything was based on SS7, but I think it was more in like a it's more an ISA based. Um, yeah. Okay. Long time yeah. since I look at that. Yeah, but it, it even I can't remember all this stuff now. So yeah, yeah. it wasn't GSM yeah. map. If, if I if I if I all remember, right. I'll cut right. this bit out. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Paul. Went down, a, went down a dark alley there. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> was there any other incidents that come to mind over the years that you thought was interesting or funny or whatever? Um. Well, actually, I guess we're. What can I talk about on, on the podcast? Um, <laughs> no, you can talk about, talk about anything you want, as long as it's not slanderous. <laughs> Tell me the story you thought, Paul. Uh, so uh, we were tremendously successful in Japan, and uh, we were obviously changing how society and, and cultures work to a certain extent, both in terms of our, our office. Uh, like, we had lots of uh, women working for us in you know, PM roles, you know, engineering roles, and... Um, I think at some stage we crossed the line with um, one of the Japanese nationalist, nationalist cults <coughs> and they essentially tried to take us out. So they, they shopped us to the uh, Inland Revenue. Wow. Um, they hacked our website. They no uh, had, had some of our key Japanese managers uh, under surveillance, like video surveillance outside the houses and whatever. And uh, I noticed we had a problem first when suddenly we had our senior Japanese people uh, all leaving because their parents were ill. <laughs> and I go, like, a one, okay, but like four people, you go, hmm, the law of averages say there's something wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's strange. Yeah, so it's not necessarily something that... Uh, how, did, uh, how was it Was it resolved? Well, we had a really strong partner uh, in uh, Nishiwai, who were one of the big trading houses. And uh, so they, essentially, when I went into Japan, I realized, like, we need a, a local partner, and mm. these guys are... The trading houses in Japan are just stunning. The most professional uh, account teams I've ever met, ever worked with in any of the you know, countries or companies that I, I've worked with, and, um, uh, and, and pretty powerful. You know, so once this happened to us, um, essentially they like, created a united front with us and helped essentially face down uh, the, uh, this particular uh, organization, shall we say. <laughs> we're <Okay>. still around. <laughs> and was it the fact that you're a gaijin or something like that? It was, it's something I've never fully got to the bottom of, but essentially we'd, we'd crossed some kind of line mm. and we had, <clears throat> they had had some of their people had joined the company. So we didn't know that. And then from inside the company, then they were trying to agitate and you know, maybe agitate for certain types of change or something perhaps. And, uh, you know, that didn't work. And then they uh, eventually started this kind of uh, aggressive harassment of the management team. Oh, that's amazing. Amazing story. Oh, it just, just goes to show, doesn't it? It's a, it's a... Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we were constantly, certainly in the early days, we were constantly rolling out systems. And um, one of them was in Bali. So Indonesia, it's enormous, like 5,000 kilometers wide. So we needed multiple uh, SMSs in it. And uh, one of them was in Bali. And um, so I'm wondering, like, what the hell is, like, why is this deployment taking so long? It was nearly six weeks. And uh, so who's on that? John McCarthy. And I don't know if you know John. So John McCarthy... 
he essentially pioneered Irish surfing on the west coast of, of Ireland. <laughs> okay. And uh, so he was, a, he was an under-19 Irish surfing champion. Wow. Wow. <laughs> He's in Bali with amazing waves. <laughs> so it took a long time. <laughs> oh, well, fair use them. I mean, I'd say that's called taking, your ini- taking an initiative, you know. Oh, but um, I guess <laughs> there were so many, um, like we, we, we'd something like se- we'd several hundred people minimum, like working across the region. And uh, like almost every one of them had a story attached to them. Mm. How did, how did you how did you find managing all that, Paul? Was it? Um, I hate. Really, uh, <laughs> I hate managing people, but um, it's just like obviously one of the one of the things that that have to be done. But I think we were really lucky in the early days that we set mm-hmm. the type of um, the kind of mentality we wanted, mm-hmm. and uh, you know that just bred other people would would hire be hired with a similar mentality, and particularly for the Asian people coming on board, they're just like. My God, who are these people? <laughs> <They're all bad>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, they got into it, you know. And, uh, yeah. and again, like particularly in Japan, where you have like as you probably would have seen in the old days in Japan, like people would never leave the office um, unless the bo- the boss leaves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And certainly when I was there, maybe they just didn't respect me at all, but they were they're out the door at six. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, listen, Paul, it's brilliant talking to you about that. Maybe, what, what are you up to now? What uh, business are you in now? Uh, I'm doing my, one of my give-back projects. So um, in Malaysia, we have a, a big problem with single-use plastic. So, um, and a, a lot of it, it's, it's a hot country, so water on the go is, is a huge issue. So a few years ago, maybe two years ago, I was just doing some research and we realized something like you know, 12, 13 million <coughs> single-use plastic bottles used every month. So as myself and a friend, we decided, you know, we need to try and do something about that. So let's look for paper-based water uh, alternatives. So eventually we looked around the world and we saw, you know, we came across Tetra Pak and, uh, you know, Tetra Pak had done really well here in terms of, you know, setting up an ecosystem, like a recycling e- ecosystem that works. So we're really focusing and working with the corporates to help them kind of lower the carbon footprint, you know, reduce the single-use plastic, you know, give them like a, like a delivery plus collection service, you know, into the recycling kind of uh, uh, area. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, work with them on and related CSR projects and, and things like very that. Very good, then, very good, Paul. So it's a long way from uh, tax matching, <laughs> but it sounds very, very interesting. But look, I'm going to give a quick plug to someone you know very well, Michael McGlade. Michael McGlade. Do I know Michael McGlade very well? I know Michael McGlade. He, he he sends me jokes on Facebook, so I, he's a great guy. <laughs> Yeah, those guys. I'm doing a bit of mentoring with those guys. So he's doing, um, uh, you know, this. Uh, they have a new service that they're going to uh, launch in Oxford Street in London. Wow. So it's really extraordinary that they're um, like a design company, a media design company. Like they're the people who do all the coloring in. So this is the first time I've seen someone coming from that type of background. You know, well, you know what? We've been you know, working all these telco companies for years and software companies for years. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> So watch this space. Um, yeah, I, I know. It's an exciting month for him. So yeah. that's Michael McGlade of Yellow. He's no, uh, up in Belfast. He's a great guy. So how, how can people contact you, Paul, if they want to, to find out about your, your current business? And they can chat to me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Or um, paul at thewatertreeproject.com. <laughs> okay. Brilliant, Paul. Thanks. And what uh, song would you like to play out on? Okay, yeah, we discussed this a, a little earlier. <laughs> no, I, have to, I have to act surprised, Paul. So don't ruin the, uh, the whole oh. illusion. Okay, so I think it's interesting <laughs> that actually you've um, included 
music as part of your podcast because I think music has always been about you know telling stories. Yeah, and I think the adventure of of that was all just gone right. It's a big story, and it was part of the story of the time. So, like, nothing exists in a vacuum. So, I think our generation it was like one of self-discovery, like you know, redefining what it meant to be Ireland in the in the modern world. And you had, you know, Jack Charlton and the lads who you you know, mm-hmm. helping us express, I guess, like showcase Irish good naturedness, like to Europe and the world. You had you two, um, you know, just having extraordinary success. And I think like music was. It was part of what pioneered and helped push along the changes. It wasn't the only thing. It was part of a, a you know, a, like a, a continuum or community of activity. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like we got great musicians at the time. We'd like what Enya, your cranberries, Sinead O'Connor, Hot as Flowers, people like that. So that then brings me to my choice today. So I heard Joe. He chose Green Day, who I also love. And then I was initially going to choose something from Bowie, but mm-hmm. then given the times we were discussing, then I thought of Hinterland. So as you know, also have a connection with Bowie through um, Jerry Leonard. Mm-hmm. So Hinterland, there were like two young musicians, Donald Coughlin and Jerry Leonard. So Jerry, of course, went on to fame and fortune on, as David Bowie's musical director. So massive shout out, Jerry, for reinterpreting you know, Rebel Rebel. Yeah, yeah brilliant. <laughs> as well, yeah. Great work on, on Next Day. And then I knew Donald as a, as a teenager. So he was like inventive, like fiercely committed music musician. And I, I would have known of Jerry at the time because he's part of the, the music scene back then with Above the, the Thunderclouds. So then what was really clear, even as, as, young, as young men, is that both of them are committed to living life without a parachute. I mean, they're going that's to find right. their future music. That's a great and way to put that. it, Paul. Sorry. That's a great way to put it. Like that. got to admire yeah. people like that. So, yeah. Okay, so, so Paul, how, how did you meet the guys? I knew Donald. Uh, I was actually in, a, in, in the same band as Donald years ago. Oh wow! Well, a couple of years. So I was the the lead singer. No so way! No way! Completely shite. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to rapidly realize that uh, you know, you know, my future lay elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! That's brilliant! And uh, that's but it's uh, why that's... I admired the likes of Donald and Jerry at the time, uh, both young men, and saying, you know what? Yeah, we're going to try and make a life out of this. And um, so, as I said earlier, like it's it's a life without a parachute. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> Just got to admire that. The story is, and we never let facts interfere with a good story. <laughs> <laughs> so they went off to Copenhagen to make music, you know, as one did. You know? I was like maybe 89 or something. So, but the music they created, like to me, was like, it was out of time. So it was Irish, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was something new, like maybe yet to be defined. So um, I think it encapsulated, uh, I, I think for like for the first time, Irish people are feeling like our culture is relevant and uh you know, the Europeans were just you know, soaking us up. The Americans were just soaking us up at, at the time. And I think that's all embodied in the music of Hinterland and other bands uh, of that time. Yeah, so, I agree. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, the gods will have their jokes. So sadly, Donal, um, he struggled with MS uh, all his adult life um, and then eventually passed away a, a few years ago. But the track I've chosen, Dark Hill, so it's a beautiful melody um, from that time. So it's about love and loss and life like in a new way. So it wasn't this old kind of Irish, you know, old school mawkishness, you know, oh, crying yeah, and yeah, blah, blah, yeah. blah. So in a small way, this is my tribute to, to Donald and to Jerry. So wherever you are, are Donald, so this is for you. Okay, that's great, Paul. And listen, it's been brilliant talking to you. And I think uh, a lot of people will enjoy this podcast. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so yeah, thanks so much. Uh, it's been interesting sort of sharing memories um there are quite a lot more and also like the thing about the asian story and it's really important is that 
you know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people played a role in that success. So mm-hmm. this wasn't just about me or a small team even out here. I mean, everybody was backed up. Procurement were so important. Delivery, engineering, you know, finance, you know, marketing. Everybody you know, played, a, played a role, including our colleagues overseas, by the way, in the other, other parts of the, uh, the company in the US and, and Europe. So my thanks to, to everyone who was part of that. Yep. And uh, my thanks for your time, Pat. No, no, no. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Okay. That we ever met